You've probably already gotten your first bug bite of the season, but itch is way more than skin deep. I thought that all it was telling us was how do we sense something outside of our body? But it's teaching us how we sense everything, not just outside of our body, not just the five senses, but a thousand senses. This week on Unexplainable, scientists have barely scratched the surface of itch. So how deep does it go? Listen to Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. Over the past few months, there's been a flurry of news reporting bringing to light a troubling story that could threaten to further erode U.S.-China relations. All over the world, Chinese officials have set up outposts, often in the form of unlisted offices, that are being used to collect information on Chinese nationals living abroad. The offices have been dubbed overseas police stations and they have not escaped the attention of the Department of Justice. According to new reporting, the FBI searched the Manhattan office of a Chinese outpost last fall. To discuss the threat and what the government is doing about it, I'm pleased to welcome back an old member of the CAFE family and my friend, John Carlin. John is a former federal prosecutor, was the head of the National Security Division at the DOJ, but who also, and more importantly, in 2020 hosted the Cyberspace podcast here at CAFE. Then he left us to go back into public service, assuming the role of Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General. Now he's back in private practice. John is an expert in, among other things, cybersecurity, national security, and corporate criminal enforcement. Mr. John Carlin, welcome back, my friend. Thanks, Breit. It's great to be back. So can I ask the most basic question? What the hell is going on here? Why, why do we have Chinese outposts in various countries around the world, including in the United States of America? It's pretty extraordinary, the sense that no matter where you are in the world, if you're part of the Chinese diaspora, that the Chinese state is taking the position that it can police you with or without the permission of the host country. And it's not just, as you talked about, the number of them. I mean, there's over 100 overseas police stations, almost none of them noticed in over 50 countries, according to one report. It's what they're doing when they're in country. Yeah. So what are they doing in the United States? And is any of it illegal? So according to charges, and there hasn't been a conviction yet, it is illegal, although there's not a statute exactly on point that contemplates what they're doing. <laughs> you need a statute to charge, no? Well, there's a, there is a proposed new statute, we can get into that, but on transnational repression and saying that in it of itself is a crime. But there are some statutes already on the books that are applicable to the type of behavior that we're seeing, which includes both being an agent, unregistered agent of a foreign country, so a spy, uh, but also interstate harassment laws, where they designed with the idea that a foreign national government would try to set up its own police stations inside the U.S.? No, but they fit the conduct when you have things like, and the details matter, when they're using these police stations to try to track down people that they think are uh, enemies of the state. And those are people that we might often think of as those voicing human rights opinions. It's not right. always dissidents. a crime here. Dissidents. Like old-fashioned dissidents, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but they do things like they brought the elderly father of someone here in the U.S. 
to say, essentially, this is what's going to happen to your family if you don't come back and surprise, the, uh, surprise them with the, with the father. They hired private investigators to park outside their house and let the car be visible so they would know that they were under surveillance. They sent pictures of people's daughter uh, and videoed the daughter as part of a campaign to say, you know, we're, we're watching you. And it's explicit. They say things like, according to the allegation, putting a threatening note on the door of the residence, if you're willing to go back to China and spend 10 years in prison, your wife and children will be all right. Yeah, so is this a matter for criminal authorities in the U.S., especially given the you know inexact nature of our statutes? Or is this something that should be taken up on diplomatic terms between our governments? I'm not sure it's an either or. And I, I think what you're seeing is a both uh, approach by justice and a real pivot uh, at the Justice Department where there was something called the China Initiative, and it was named that under the prior administration. And it got associated with focusing on things like the prosecution of intellectual property and economic espionage theft. And you saw the new Assistant Attorney General for National Security, Matt Olson, unwind that name and switch the focus to make it clear, hey, we're not going after, according to, uh, to Matt, we're not going after Chinese people because they're Chinese. We're going after the actions of the state. And some of those actions are directed against the dissidents living here in the United States. That's the transnational repression. And in that sense, it's very consistent with the broader pivot of the Justice Department under Attorney General Garland to really focus on rule of law issues around protecting civil rights and free speech. Can you answer a basic question that some people might be asking? You know, we in America have federal and local law enforcement agencies, the DEA, the FBI, we have agents stationed throughout the world. I worked with three police commissioners at NYPD. We're very proud of the fact that they deploy NYPD officers in other countries as well. Just quickly explain to us why this is very different from that. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And there could be a totally legitimate basis to work cooperatively with foreign police officers, including Chinese police officers. But when that occurs, it's declared. So there's a process. In fact, in almost every embassy now, there's someone from the FBI serving as a legal attache. The host country knows they're there and they're not permitted to take unilateral law enforcement operations on another country's soil without the permission of that of that government. So you work out an arrangement. And in fact, at least in Italy, and I think there's a third party report still studying this, but in Italy, it looks like with the cooperation of the Italian government, there are Chinese police officers and they're doing things like providing police protection because there are a lot of uh, Chinese tourists and others that travel to to Italy. So- Right, but that's that's different from being in country to crack down on dissidents. Exactly. And one way you can guard against that, again, it would be having the conversation where you're open and transparent about who's here and what they're doing. And then you can make sure that it, it aligns to activity that is also that there's a parallel statute. So it's illegal in both countries. And dissidents inside the, being a dissident inside the United States, we have our First Amendment that's not illegal. So you mentioned Italy. The reporting is that Chinese officials tried to develop and enter into a memorandum of understanding with the New York City Police Department. What would that even look like? 
Well, you could imagine, and you, uh, you always got to love the names of these. Um, you know, these <laughs> operations, it's called Operation Fox Hunt to track down fugitives. And then even more troubling to a U.S. ear is Operation Skynet, which sounds a bit creepy and surveillance oriented, but, but Skynet was not good. They could be a, let's pick some an area where we've traditionally had good cooperation, even with countries about whom we disagree on many, many issues, like the exploitation of children and child sexual trafficking. Now, that's an area where you do joint police operations, you pass information about a fugitive. I could see a circumstance where they'd permit some activity on your soil. You know, the detectives work together here. But to apply that to someone who's pro-Uyghur or has a different view on Taiwan, to your point, is totally different, number one. And then number two, taking unilateral action. So acting, you can't even operate without permission, right, if you're out of your county when you're a police officer. Yeah. So to have that done and it's uh, someone from a foreign country, that's just not something we've even seen other countries try to do. You've spent a lot of time thinking about intelligence gathering and national security issues, as I mentioned in the intro. How does this practice of having these outposts in the U.S. and in other countries fit into the larger practice and context of Chinese intelligence gathering? I think there are, particularly around hacking and the use of computer exploitation, some similarities in this brazenness of the activity. So if you compare... And contrast, it used to be Cold War mentality, and maybe we're entering a new era with the Russian aggression in Ukraine of a a Cold War mentality. But there were enormous efforts, and you prosecuted one of the cases. It's where I think we worked together at uh, Justice that became the show The Americans. The incredible expense to have the illegal people living here for 10, 20 years to be operated uh, later, great extremes to keep them from being caught, the counterintelligence posture of the U.S. would be if you spotted such an operation, maybe you don't disrupt it for a period of time. You use it to feed false information because it, they were so hard to spot. You didn't want to uh, disrupt it. It's, you wanted instead to observe it and turn it to your country's advantage. And then you compare that to China, who for a period of time, I think a former director of the FBI referred to it as a drunken gorilla. They were so noisy breaking into people's computers and stealing intellectual property (laughs) that you just couldn't miss the activity. This seems similar. It's almost a poke in the eye. It's so brazen to just set up a police station with its own 911 number in a foreign country without telling them. I believe they call them administrative hubs, not police stations. Is that (laughs) administrative hub fair? I guess not. I I think when you lay out the facts of what they were what they were doing, some of which we went through in terms of coercing people to come back to country. It doesn't sound like an administrative hub. But so I want to go back to Italy for a second, where- I'd like to go been... back to Italy too. <laughs> for more than a second. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about how there have been multiple joint patrols with the Chinese police in Rome and in Milan, not to disparage our friends in Italy, but are they being naive here? Look, I think there is a lot of concern. And so I think both the U.S. and other foreign countries are talking to the Italians. I think the Italians are taking a look at what's happening. And it may be what they approved. You know, they approved it for one purpose, and they're finding out now it was used for other purposes. To give you a sense that the Chinese government, according to one report, has said they used Operation Skynet to return something like over 1,000, 1,100 people from January to November of 2021 
But of that over a thousand cases, only 13 involved making a request to international law enforcement for cooperation or assistance. So we're talking about diplomatic efforts and criminal justice efforts. Does the U.S. government have the ability to just throw these people out of the country who, who man these outposts and just be done with it? It's one of those, it depends, but in many circumstances, they would. And they definitely would if they're undeclared agents. They can both be prosecuted and um, they're not here legally. If they're here legally, it can be more complicated. Is it your understanding that most of them are here legally so that they don't risk being thrown out? Well, if you look at the charges, they're being charged in part as acting of an agent, as an agent of a foreign government, which means that they're here without diplomatic or consular protections and they didn't notify the attorney general. So that same basis would be one to remove someone from the country. Some people might ask the question, what took so long? Is there an answer to that? It was always hard to tell from the outside whether it took a a while to uncover the conduct or whether they spent part of that time developing the richness of evidence that we're seeing and deciding for counterintelligence purposes to track it and see what they could develop before making it public and disrupting and letting the adversary know that you know what they're up to. Is there any evidence that these criminal actions are having any kind of deterrent effect on the Chinese or not? It's not just in the U.S. It's a worldwide problem. And you're seeing similar actions in Spain, in Ireland, in the Netherlands by, uh, by governments around the world. And so you would exp- and you're seeing some defensiveness. I think you saw the response where they're being called administrative stations, <laughs> despite what the facts show, by China. I don't know whether it will deter. If it does not deter... It's not helping in the battle for uh, hearts and minds that's occurring right now. So in that sense, it's still probably advantageous to rule of law countries that they're exposing this conduct and and penalizing it where they find it. One reason I ask is you and I have had this conversation over many years as friends and as colleagues and as people who comment on these things in a different context, in the cyber context. And the debate has always been, do you name and shame and charge people, even if you're never going to get them in custody in the United States. And there, my recollection is that there's been a reason to believe that there's evidence that when the States does things like that, the Chinese do less and it has an effect. Has that debate on naming and shaming or taking action to deter the Chinese, has that shifted at all in your experience? Look, I think time has told that it is not just a name and shame approach. And that's certainly true here where it involves people taking contact on the soil of the other country. So they're subject to arrest. And you've seen in other instances now that the name and shame approach involved actual people in actual jail cells facing actual charges. I also think it's shifted where you've started to see by having the public discussion, if you look at where we are now in the use of other tools, like the analysis that takes place before you allow foreign investment and the screening that takes place, the new export control tools, the nationwide investment in things like semiconductors, that making public the conduct that you're seeing has led to other actions to prevent it and has also built stronger alliances among countries throughout the world that are opposed to this type of intrusion on their sovereignty. Last question, and you answered some of it in your, in your prior answer. There are a host of fronts on which the United States is antagonistic towards China. 
I said recently on the podcast that if you ask members of either party in Washington, they will say it is impossible to be too tough on China. Where do you put this on the spectrum of importance, given that there are all sorts of other things like theft of intellectual property, cybersecurity, other matters of national security, and everything else? Is this, is this a small board thing? Or because it deals in human rights and the protection and safety of dissidents, is it more important than it seems? I think it is in many ways, in part because it, it unifies, as you say, there aren't too many issues right now. We're in a partisan time in our country that unify Democrats and Republicans. And similarly, there's a lot of always churn and healthy competition, even among the friendliest of states. This is such a, a upfront intrusion on sovereignty, and it's so aggressive and brazen that it's unifying and helping to build partnerships and relationships among countries throughout the world about why it's important to have a rule of law. So in that sense, you kind of wonder why they don't change the behavior. It seems penny-wise and pound-foolish. Penny-wise and pound-foolish. You're the first person to use that expression on this podcast. (laughs) Maybe because my (laughs) daughter was asking why we still have pennies, so... (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) It's archaic. John, thank you for your prior service. Thank you for continuing to focus on these issues. It's good to have you back. Come back soon. Thanks, Preet. Welcome the chance to discuss this with you. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.